I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. The police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis has sparked nationwide protests calling for major police reform and the defunding of police departments. San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott joins me today to talk about why he supports the defunding of the SFPD and what that might look like. He's also talking about why this moment in time seems different than when he was an officer in the Los Angeles Police Department during the deadly Rodney King riots in 1992. Chief Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Heather. I'm glad to be here. Good to see you, if only virtually. Hopefully we'll be able to see each other in person one day. <laughs> I know, hopefully soon. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I just wanted to start by asking you what it's been like to watch these past several weeks unfold in our country with so many protests nationwide, um, you know, shining a light on police departments and the brutality that sometimes occurs within them. And, and what's it been like for you to to watch that? It's occur? very difficult. It's difficult on, on multiple levels. I mean, to see, number one, the incident uh, in Minneapolis, w- which was just absolutely horrific and tragic, it was hard to see and hard to watch as a human being. Uh, let alone uh, being that I'm in this profession, it was a very difficult thing to watch from from all angles, all perspectives. Yeah. Do you ever feel torn both being, you know, a chief of police and a black man that, you know, kind of torn between these two um, two groups of people who've been on the streets across our country for the past well, few weeks? Well, I, I, I torn in that I understand both perspectives very well. And, you know, I have a job to do and I've always had a job to do being, you know, a police officer and now a chief of police. But on the other hand, you know, I I understand what this is about and I understand, you know, what it feels like to be an African-American, a black man in this this country. And so I I wouldn't say torn. I would say there there are times where it feels I feel conflicted, uh, Uh which is kind of saying the same thing. But um yeah, there, there are issues that resonate with me as a, as a black man. And, you know, I see the other side of of the issues facing our profession and policing in this country as well. So uh, really, right now, this raising the level of this conversation and, as you said, shining light on this really has, uh, has challenged all of us. You know, I think not in and outside of the policing profession, it's challenged yeah. all of us to do more. Why do you think this particular video of George Floyd, it was obviously horrific to watch, but why why did this one get people's attention across the country? Because there's just been a string of these kinds of cell phone videos of horrible things happening between police and black people for years, if not you know over a decade. Why do you think this one captured attention finally? Well, I think what you just said about a string of these things that have happened over the years and over the really the course of our history, I, I think that's the answer. I mean, things build up. And they reach a pressure point or a tipping point. And there are certain incidents that just this one just shocked the conscience of probably most people that, that saw it. And I think it reached that tipping point where we saw what happened after. So I think it was a buildup. I mean, it's not the first issue like this that has happened. And uh, many people, you know, got to the point where it's just this is enough. When you saw that, what was your reaction? Could you imagine a police officer in San Francisco ever doing something like that? Or what went through your mind when you saw a fellow police officer committing such a horrible um, apparent crime against another well, person? I mean, the same emotions that I just described. I mean, it, it was it was it was it was a, a shock to the conscience, to say the least. Uh, 
And my first reaction was, this is horrible. This was horrible. I mean, I, I think I saw the video uh, Tuesday it was the first time that I saw the video. And, you know, the Minneapolis uh, Police Department and chief there came out swiftly, I believe the very next day with the termination decision and all. But you know, when I saw it, I, I knew it was it was very bad. And I know you were an officer in the LAPD during the Rodney King riots in 1992. Can you describe what it was like to experience those and how they seem different from the protests going yeah, ni- on now? 1992, uh, again, it was, I, w- I had two, a little over two years with the department at, at the time uh, in, in April of 1992 when the riots erupted in L.A. And uh, about three years, actually. But it, as, as intense as that experience was, and it was horrific, I mean, the thing about 1992, and I worked for, I, I don't know how many straight days, probably almost 20 straight days when it was all said and done, long hours. Uh, the, the things that were happening in 1992, a lot of people lost their lives. And, and you know, I get a little uh, still kind of emotional when I think about living through that. And when I look at, I've seen documentaries and, and things since then, and I just, you know, probably two months ago, just watched a documentary and I hadn't seen many of those images in a while. And looking back, it was just hard to believe that I actually experienced that. Seeing the, the just the city that was on fire and out of control and people, I think 63, 64 people died, you know, and, and thank goodness in this round of uh, civil unrest, we, we didn't have that type of loss of life, but that's something that really, has, I think, caused me to have the frame of mind that I have now, to see how really a city and a community and a nation can be impacted by our actions. And that, that, that our, our, when I mean police officers, um, that's something that I have always taken seriously. After 1992, and it was early in my career, I think it put me on a course of uh, probably added to how I think about policing now. You know, how we treat people, how we should treat people, you know, the, the really the ramifications of what we do. And we have a huge responsibility and a lot of people depend on us. And when we when we don't do things the right way, and particularly when it's malicious and when it's uh, criminal, it, it, it just it casts a bad stone on the whole profession and it shakes the confidence of of the people who depend on us. And that mm-hmm. stuck with me, and it still sticks with me to this day. So it was, you know, it was early in my career, but it kind of set the pace for how I think. Mm-hmm. Do you think what's going on now in terms of the civil unrest will have more of a lasting effect and permanent change created from it? Or do you think it will pass like the incidents of 1992? No, I, I, the difference to me and in, in, in here, it, what's happening now, I think uh, just based on the movements that have, have been caused by this moment and this incident, I think will change policing uh, for years to come. I think we're at a pivotal moment and there have been pivotal, critical moments like this in, in the history of policing that have really changed things. I mean, 1968 was a similar year. There were, I think, 168 uh, riots in the country in 1968 and there was a presidential commission report that really mapped out what needed to happen in policing. And really that, that year set 
the narrative for policing for the next 20, 30 years. I mean, community policing was talked about in 1968 that that had to happen. It took a long time to get there. I don't think the world or this country has the patience to to take as long to implement change as, as what happened in 68 and even in 92. I think it's going to be more immediate. I think there's a way more of a sense of urgency. And um, if, if anything good comes out of this, I think that will. And I know you were just up till 3 a.m. <laughs> listening to a police commission meeting, and there was just a string of, of people in public comment um, asking that the police department be defunded or some people are calling for it to be abolished altogether. So I wanted to ask you about what defunding would look like. Um, so the SFPD currently has a $606 million budget from the city plus um, $78 million from the airport. How much money do you think you would be willing to see directed elsewhere? And what would that look like? What would that make? How would that make your police department work differently? Well, I don't know what it's going to look like when it's all said and done. I know right now we're looking at uh, approximately you know, this fiscal year, 23 million or around that amount in, in cuts. The mayor's, uh, the mayor and supervisor, Shimon Walton, uh, state, has, have stated publicly that they want to re- direct funding from the police department to help the African-American community. Uh, there's a lot of details to be worked out. I don't know what it's going to look like when it's all said and done. And I've said publicly and I say now, you know, definitely I'm open to it. And I think, you know, I am supportive of investing funds to the African-American community to help those who need help. I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's going to take some sacrifice from the police department. I know where we are right now, but that's an evolving uh, thing you know, COVID really threw a wrench in our budgeting process. Usually, we're, we're almost done with the budgeting process, and we had to re- really reset because of COVID, uh, readjust, and now we have the civil unrest that's happened and this reinvestment that's going to happen. So, I don't know Heather what it's going to look like, but I, what I can tell you is I'm definitely willing uh, and sincerely willing to work with the mayor and the supervisor to make things better because this is not a zero sum game. You know, oftentimes we think of uh, I win, you lose. We can't think of this in that term. You know, there are communities in our city and African-American community is not the only community. But right now, that's the focus for for this conversation. And we have to look at this in terms of a a shared sacrifice. And I can only speak for me and the police department. Uh, We're willing to make that sacrifice. You know, we still want to deliver services. We still want to make sure that we don't... uh, degradate our response times. And, and so we have, we have to look at everything. And just to be clear, the $23 million is um, only because the mayor has asked all departments to cut 10%, nothing particular with the police department in response to the pandemic. But you're willing to lose more money on top of that, you're saying? Well, yeah, what I'm saying is wh- whatever that leads to, we have to, we have to do what we need to do to make it happen. Uh, I don't know what that number is going to look like or uh, how, how much additional or what we've already been asked to identify additional contingencies for additional cuts. So when it's all said and done, the mayor and her budget office will you know, tell us what needs to be done. And we're going to do everything we can to work toward that. So uh, again, I, you know, I want to emphasize this, this cannot be a zero sum game. You know, somebody's gotta, somebody's gotta roll their sleeves up and pitch in to make things better. And I think we're, we, we have to do that as well. I'll be right back with Chief Scott. 
I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Bill Scott, chief of the San Francisco Police Department. Defunding the police seems to have suddenly become kind of a mainstream idea, which just means to lose some money and have it redirected elsewhere. But there's another kind of more controversial idea, which is to abolish police altogether, which some people in San Francisco are calling for. What do you think of that idea? I don't I don't believe that's the right thing to do. Uh, uh, I don't believe that's the right thing to do at all, because the bottom line is there are a lot of people out there who depend on police, police <laughs> agencies in this, well, in this city uh, when they need help. You know, we had over 300,000 calls for service, emergency calls for service last year. What about those folks when there's no police? I just talked in the police commission about gun violence that was happening in the Bayview, Ingleside, and, and Mission, where we had people that were uh, automatic, we- not automatic weapons, but high-powered assault we- weapons, where you know, 50, 80 rounds were fired in, in the middle of a community in, in daylight in a shopping district. What about those people? I mean, I think we have to think this through. And uh, I, I don't think, and I feel very strongly about this, that that is the right thing to do because some people don't believe they need the police. You know, that's that's their freedom and their choice to, to have that opinion. But there are a lot of people who do, and we want to be there for those people that who do. And I know that some wealthier San Franciscans are already organizing their own private security for their neighborhoods. And so it seems like abolishing police would further, um, you know, make wealthier people kind of hire their own police and then lower income people would obviously not be able to do that. Yeah. And then it becomes uh, another issue of uh, wealth disparity. You know, people who can Mm -hmm. afford to be safe will do it and people who can't won't. And, you know, the most hard hit communities with you in in this city with violent crime are some of the communities who need help the most. So what about those folks who when Mm -hmm. they pick up the phone, when you have 80 uh, shots being fired outside of your window and you pick up the phone and call police. Um, if we're not there, who's going to come? Who's going to answer those calls? And Mayor Bree just announced um, that she is proposing a reform plan that includes replacing po- some police with unarmed professionals for neighborhood disputes, school campus issues, and uh, mental health crises. And I was wondering what you think of that idea. Yeah, I think those are all things that uh, definitely are uh, should be on the table. And these are things that we have been talking about for for quite a while now you know, how we can do better in terms of overall health and public safety of the city. And I think those ideas, they're things that we respond to. Uh, homelessness, being homeless is not a crime. You know, there are behavioral and criminal issues that arise from sometimes in those situations. But, you know, we have an agency to address housing and and sheltering the unhoused and things like that. So the things that we can do to be more uh, focused with non-police resources to address those issues, I'm all for that. Uh, mental health workers who can who can respond 24 hours a day when there's not a criminal activity or somebody uh, whose life may be in jeopardy or safety may be in jeopardy because of a violent situation. I mean, those are things that we're I've always been for. And I think this situation that we're in is going to propel that conversation into action. And I applaud the mayor for uh, taking that to the next step. And I hope we're able to figure out some things that are going to work well for our city. 
Because at the end of the day, you know, community safety is not just policing. It's all those things that you just described. And we can do that better and more efficiently. Great for us. And you were initially hired in San Francisco um, in response to a previous string of shootings of um, people of color in the city and the resignation of the former police chief because of that. Do you think that the reform efforts um, on your watch have made a real difference? Absolutely. And then the data, there's data there to support that. I mean, when you talk about the shootings, which was the, which was the spotlight issue uh, that led to the collaborative reform initiative, uh, the reform that you speak of, we have dramatically reduced use of force and, and mainly led by the pointing of firearms. When you look at our track record over the last couple of years with officer-involved shootings, dramatically reduced. I mean, we went almost 18 years, I mean, 18 months. Uh, we did go 18 months with, with zero on-duty officer-involved shootings. And, you know, that hadn't happened. And I, I, nobody can remember the last time that's happened. Um, we haven't, in the past two years, that we've had two. Um, you know, and, and, you know, that's nothing to brag about because we like to have zero. But the point here is that we made tremendous effort and tremendous progress in changing that narrative on officer-involved shootings and use of force. We still have some work to do, and we've identified some policy changes that need to happen just in light of uh, Mr. Floyd's death that the police commission is, is directing us, and we're working with the commission to make those changes quickly. But, yeah, we have changed the narrative on use of force in this city. It's still, there's definitely still more to be done. You know, with our 272 recommendations, I've said publicly, Heather, that we're not pleased with the pace. The California DOJ has spoken on that, and uh, they were very critical as well they should have been. But I can say one thing with the use of force category of those recommendations, we have been found by the California Department of Justice 50% in substantial compliance. That was our focus at the beginning of this, and I think that's something that we can be pleased with. So out of the 58 use of force recommendations, 29 of them have been found by an independent reviewer, the California Department of Justice, to be in, set, in substantial compliance. And I think that speaks well. We have a lot of work to do, granted, but I think we have made a lot of progress, particularly in that area. And would you be willing to look at reforms in terms of the way the department handles protests? Some people were saying that your officers were too rough and using tear gas or batons and um, when you know, protesters were mostly being peaceful. Yeah, well, uh, let me, I, I'd like to set the record straight. We did, we did not use any tear gas during any of the protests. Um, we had 22 incidents of, of use of force, um, and we did not fire rubber bullets. We, we didn't have any serious injuries in our, uh, any of the protests, other than the Saturday night where we had the massive looting and we had a little bit of that starting on Sunday before we were able to, to restore peace. Um, I, I challenge anybody to find videos of San Francisco police departments using excessive force during the protest. I've seen video footage of other departments and um, we did not have those type of issues here. Now we did make arrests for curfew on particularly Saturday was the majority of our arrests. And we made some on, uh, that Wednesday where we had the big protest that was largely peaceful, that's drawn a lot of criticism and skepticism mm -hmm. because we arrested individuals for the curfew violation at the end of that protest. Uh, but we have not seen 
San Francisco police departments uh, doing what you've seen in other parts of the country. So, I mean, if, if those, if anybody uh, believes otherwise, I definitely, if, if you know, we have evidence of that or proof of that, <clears throat> we'd like to see it and we'd like to address it. But as I saw it, I was out there uh, monitoring things throughout that week, uh, <clears throat> working long hours to me and many, many other folks of, in leadership positions to make sure that we did the best that we could do to keep peace in the city, to allow people who wanted to peacefully protest, peacefully protest. But also, there was a high degree of danger with what was going on, particularly when the looting started in, in this city and in, in other cities. Uh, we were in a very volatile situation. And thank goodness we didn't have uh, anybody seriously injured in this city, including uh, people who were protesting or officers. But it, it was very volatile. Then I wanted to ask you about the Tenderloin. Um, that neighborhood has just really deteriorated during the COVID-19 pandemic um, pretty much in every way. I wrote a column last week about this, and it just doesn't appear that the mayor's plan to fix it is really doing much of anything. I wondered what you think the police department's role is in um, in improving that neighborhood. Well, twofold. I, the criminal activity, of course, my my viewpoint is the criminal activity. That's our job to address the criminal activity. Uh, drug sales, drug dealing, drug use to a, to a large degree. Those are things that many, many people have complained about that we have to get a better handle on. And we make a lot of arrests. Um, and COVID slowed things down some. Uh, whole basically criminal justice system was shut down basically and in, in the heat of uh, COVID, when we were trying to really flatten the curve and uh, stop the spread of the virus in our city, so it did slow things down. But now we're we're back at at making arrests, and we have officers out there every day arresting. But it has to go beyond that. I mean, as you know, there are other conditions that that the city is working on uh, addressing. But the criminal activity in that neighborhood, you know, that that's our job to address the robberies, the drug dealing. Mm-hmm. The, the assaults. Um, and as you called out earlier about, you know, working with other professionals, healthcare professionals, mental health professionals to address some of the street behavior issues that we see that really degrade the quality of life in, in the Tenderloin community. I think that's what, going back to your earlier conversation, that's where we have to think differently. And that's where we do need uh, support. And uh, again, I thought, you know, the mayor, the direction she and others are going in, to make that happen. Our job, if, if we can stay focused on our job, is to address the crime, the criminal activity, to work with whatever entities we have to work with to do our part in addressing the quality of life issues. There are more families, young families in the Tenderloin than in any other part of the city. Some people can't even go outside their homes because of the, the conditions, and that has to change. Do you get frustrated that your officers are making arrests again, particularly for drug dealers, and yet um, the DA is uh, taking a month to arraign them? I know the courts have slowed down because of the pandemic, but he said that his office is taking a month to arraign them or even issue stay away orders. So they're just back immediately. Well, to be, yeah, to, quite frankly, we, I can't, to be in a leadership position, I have to keep myself and our, our officers motivated to do their jobs. Yeah, there are things that we have to work out with the criminal justice system, including our work with the district attorney, 
Uh, we, I've talked to the district attorney. He's willing to work with us. We have to really be smart about what that looks like because we're dealing with the whole criminal justice system. You know, the courts in, in, have gone to zero bail for the most part. Um, we arrest a lot of the people over and over again, and that can be a little frustrating at times. It's not any one person's fault. I think we need to look at the entire criminal justice system and move in a direction that is efficient and effective. If you're arresting the same person over and over again, sometimes it feels like you're, you're, you're shoveling sand. So yeah. we, we, but we still have a job to do. And if that person comes back and repeatedly breaks the law, we can't throw our hands up and say, you know what, why bother? We still have to do our jobs and, and, and do what we have to do to protect the safety of the people in that community, so or any community for that matter. Long-winded way to answer your question, but yeah, it's frustrating. But we're going to continue to do our jobs. And Great. It, but well, thank it, you. I want to make sure I want to make sure yeah. that I, that I point out this is not uh -huh. about you know uh, frustration with the district attorney. I think we have issues throughout our criminal justice system that we need to take a look at to see how we can work in the best interests of everything that's on the table because the same discussion gets back to disparities and who's getting arrested and, and, and that causes its own set of issues. Uh, right. You know, so it, it's, it's very complicated. Well, thank you for explaining that and for all your good work and for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you to Chief Scott for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.